Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. My name is John Trapagan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I welcome Dr. Michael Fish to talk about his recent book, An Anthropology of the Machine, Tokyo's Commuter Train Network, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Professor Fish, thank you for joining me on the STS channel. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about your interesting work on the Tokyo Train Network. Well, thank you for having me. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. Great. Um, I'll begin by uh, with a, just a little bit of background uh, about Dr. Fish. He's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago, and he received his PhD from Columbia University in 2008. His research rests at the intersection of sociocultural anthropology and science and technology studies, and is concerned with the dynamic between changing conceptualizations of nature, culture, and technological innovation that inform experiences of immersive technological mediation. Um, As an anthropologist who works on Japanese culture and society, I'm particularly delighted that Dr. Fish could join me for a conversation about this remarkable book. Um, I suspect anyone who stood in the middle of Tokyo Station has at times wondered, how in heaven's name does this vast maze of a rail network function um, Tokyo Station is, is an experience for anyone who hasn't been there. Um, and the idea of, of this system is involving the experience of immersive technology mediation seems to very much capture what it's like to be amidst that maze. And so um, I think there's a great deal to think about um, in, in Dr. Fish's work, and, and I want to dive right into this. And so I'm going to begin by asking how you came to be interested in exploring the Tokyo rail system as a site of human-machine co-construction of social and physical reality. And, you know, despite spending many hours riding on its trains, I I never really thought of the rail system in that way, but your book clearly brings out this aspect of any large rail system. So I'd like to, you know, find out, how did you you get into this? So I have to say that I also, spending a lot of time in Tokyo, never really thought of the system as a potential site of analysis until I missed the train. And it was missing the train that actually made the system stand out for me uh, um, to recognize the importance of the system within the city. It's sort of a background environment or infrastructure that you that's so much part of the environment that one just doesn't pay attention to it. So I actually, I was out one night in Shinjuku, I think it was a Saturday night, and I was out for a, a, a poetry word slam. And it went on too late, and I ended up missing the final train home, and I was in Higashi Kogane at the time. And so I ended up staying out all night in the, uh, and just walking around the station. And I, I, you know, it's getting a hotel or something was too expensive. So I, I was a student at the time. So I just walked around the station all night, and it occurred to me that there's a whole different world that comes alive after the last train. And is cleaned up by morning. So by seven o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, there's there's there are almost no signs of that world that was that emerged overnight. And so my first interest in the train really started with the idea of the the time of in between the the last train and the first train in the morning. So that particular was like three and a half hours, four hours, 
where one gets a different perspective of urban Tokyo. So it came from there. Um, unfortunately, uh, while writing the, while doing the, the research for the book, I spent each week, I spent one night out walking around the city throughout the whole year or well, a year and a half. And, um, I, all that, all that material never got into the book, really. I mean, it's there in the background, but it never got into the book. It just ended up being a different story. So maybe one day in the future, I'll have little vignettes about wandering around in, in Tokyo after dark and all the strange people one meets and all the interesting things that happen. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I have only a couple of times been caught after the, the trains shut down for the evening. And it is it is an experience in, in Tokyo. And also, it's just you have to sort of thought of, all right. Am I going to spend, you know, 4,000 yen to get a cab, to get home? You know, what do I do? And, yeah. Um, and, and there's so always that much time that you can sit in, you know, in an all-night all McDonald's just kind of waiting for morning. Yes, there's, that's there's, right. There's only so many you know, hamburgers one can eat, right? So, yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and I, it's actually, mm-hmm, Go ahead. There's, there's another side to this that I initially was interested in the question of technological mediation in the city. And I didn't know how to get at that question. And, you know, so the train, uh, realizing that the train could be an avenue into that, into that kind of study was important for me. And now, of course, I go back and I looked at, I look at what I've been interested in all my life. And it turns out that I forgot about this, but my junior theme in high school was about technological dystopia. So it seems like I've been writing the same story for a long time in life about technology and mediation. And it just needed an avenue for expression that found itself to the train. Well, the, the train is really a wonderful way to think about it. I, I, I will I'll come back to this a little bit later, but it really, it really struck me as I read the book, the sense of, you know, I ride the trains as any of us do who go to Tokyo all of the time. And I never really thought of it as a locus of human technology interface. It, it's obvious that it is, but doesn't seem that way. It, it seems like just this way I get around in the city. And so I, I thought that was a very powerful observation that you, you, you know, that the whole book brings out. Um, you, you describe the book as one in which you develop an ethnographically performative approach for thinking with the historically inflected practices, experiences, and schemas of, of operation that emerged with, uh, in Tokyo's commuter train network, which I think gets at this, this kind of point about this interface. And, Early in the book, you argue that the story of the train network in Tokyo becomes paradigmatic of the human relationship with machines and modernity. Could, could you talk about this idea in, in some detail? And, and how does it, how, what do you mean by it becomes paradigmatic of the human relationship with machines and modernity? Sure. So there are two parts, I think, to this question. And the first part would be what I mean by paradigmatic. And the second is the sort of performative approach that I take. The paradigmatic aspect comes back, it comes out of my reading of, of Wolfgang Schivelbusch. And um, I don't know if you, you've read Schivelbusch's just remarkable and very um, subtly theoretical work on the emergence of the train, and the train system as a technology in the um, 1800s. No, I haven't. That sounds oh, it, interesting. It's just a, Fantastic book. I mean, it's it's just wonderful, and it it's it it follows the the emergence of the system through all the kinds of contingencies that the historical contingencies and 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 um, different sort of technological innovations that allow this 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 
in symbol that we call the train to be produced. And Shivabush, for him, this is a story that um, that lends itself to understanding the the emergence of what we recognize today as a kind of a modern condition of technology. And it's important because what Shivabush is showing us in the story is that the train emerges as the first technological ensemble. And so it's a massive ensemble. It's not just tracks and 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 uh, and the engines, it's all the architecture and all the, the infrastructure that's necessary around the train to support it. You know, the roads had to be leveled in certain ways, mountains had to be moved, uh, communities had to be had to had to um, be uh, built up in order to sustain it, and coal had to be produced in order to be brought in for the train. So it's not just a single apparatus, but a whole ensemble. And what he's showing us by this is that this is the, really the first technology that emerges not only as a tool, but as a total environment. And so it really becomes the first instantiation of a kind of technological immersion that we that we experience day, today in life with our use of technology. It's very hard for us to think about where would be a place on earth that would be completely outside the technological because everywhere we go we're sort of immersed already in a kind of technological condition and so Shiva Bush gives us the um the first real sort of historical story of how this infrastructure emerges and the way in which the human relationships and the human body has to change. Human perception itself has to change in order to be able to accommodate, to be able to exist with this technology. Um, he has wonderful parts where uh, looking out the te- looking out the, uh, the, um, the train window is so overwhelming because the technology is moving so fast. So we actually have to learn how to see the landscape differently. Um, all sorts of things. We have to learn to how to relate to people differently because of the technology, because of this new ensemble. So he really, he really emphasizes that aspect for me. So it becomes paradigmatic of of a modern condition, and so that's really where that idea comes from. So there are many stories that are told around the world about the emergence of train systems, and these stories tend to sort of repeat themselves. Whether you go to India, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Europe and America, the train brings with it a new experience of modernity, a new experience of of technology that we call the modern experience of technological condition. So that's what I mean by the paradigmatic aspect of it. And so one of the problems that I had with this was that when I initially wrote this uh, dissertation for and what was initially the, the text before the, the book, I really didn't know how to treat that technology. I didn't know how to, 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 to write an ethnography or an anthropology of that kind of technology. And the reason for this is the people that I had to, the thinkers that I had to think with in order to do this were Shivelbush and were Marx and people like Lefebvre and people um, um, people who, who had written or, or you know, Zimmel or, or Adorno, people who had written about technology in the modern condition or Heidegger. Right? So people who had a certain kind of narrative about technology. And by writing, by rely, trying to think with them too much, actually, my first attempt at writing this story pretty much reproduced what could be called almost the Shivelbush but in Japan story. <laughs> and I felt that that was very inadequate for the real experience. And so in the first iteration of this, my consideration of the dia- of the, the technological, um, the, the, tri- the traffic diagram that I used that really becomes the basis of, this, of the book, 
I wasn't able to think with that. I wasn't able to incorporate that into the story because the kind of technological narratives I had or the, the theoretical apparatuses that I had for this were really one of technology as an, uh, really one of sort of an adversarial relationship to technology or one where it's a celebratory relationship with technology. And so I had to find a way to move beyond those very uh, modernist uh, stories about human technological relationships in order to be able to accommodate the nuances of the of the actual system and the actual experience of riding the train. I actually, I think that that's a really interesting point. I, I think that the point also about how the train forces us or or caused us in some ways to reimagine our, our world is, is really interesting. I have often thought when I'm on subways, how different it is to think about geographical space in a city where people travel by subway, because they never think in terms of distance. They think only in terms of time. How long does it take to get from station X to station Z? And it doesn't really matter where you go. It, it it's, doesn't matter how many miles or kilometers it is. It doesn't matter what the route is. It's only time. And that's very different from the way we think about, well, like a city I live in in Austin where, well, we have a train sort of, but, um, but basically everyone travels by car. And, you know, you're thinking about the route. You think about time as well, but you think about the route. And, of course, the amount of time can be really messed up because you get into a traffic jam or something. And so um, the, the, the technology leads to a, a very different way of interacting with the world, I think. Yeah. And in Tokyo, especially, I mean, if you're looking for a hotel or if you're looking for an apartment in Tokyo and you go into the, um, the realtor sites, there's always an option to choose. Well, the main option is usually to choose according to the station location. And so the whole city is sort of this, these points on the station and you always work out from there. So you'll choose your hotel by what by which station you want to be closest to or where you want to arrive to. So it's always everything is configured around stations. So it's in Tokyo it's very very um it's 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 a really dominant infrastructure. Yes, that that's that's very true. I think most uh North Americans probably don't grasp the extent to which that dominates the way people live their lives unless maybe you're in New York or you know a few other yeah. cities that have really developed, um, you know, subway systems and, and, and mass transit systems. I'd like to turn to a theme that runs throughout the book that um, you refer to as finessing the interval. And you engagingly describe at one point in terms, this in terms of uh, the manner in which drivers of trains adjust to delays caused by events like packing cars to be vastly over capacity. And, and you you uh, cover that 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 experience of being in Tokyo quite effectively, and um, so you developed this idea in relation to the indigenous concept of yoyu, um, which you translate as leeway. And and um, as you explore this idea, it becomes clear that it has much broader implications for thinking about the importance of systematicity in the post-war era in Japan, and more generally in the continuously emerging intersection between humans and they're machines that, that really characterize our world more generally. I found your work really challenges the idea, and, and you, you mentioned this a moment ago, about an inherent conflict between human and machine um, that I think is in, in some ways captured in, in this notion of finessing the interval that, that challenges that conflict. And so 
Could you describe for our listeners what you mean by this phrase and its implications for understanding uh, how humans and machines co-inhabit the world? Yeah, so it does. Def- it definitely goes back to the previous question and my underlying goal of the book, which was to try to develop um, a, techma- a framework for which to think about technology and anthropology outside of the received frameworks that I was struggling to work with, which was one of, you know, technology is either something that's going to, we're all going to become more technological and it's going to save the world, these sort of these celebratory utopian technological narratives, or the idea that the more technology increases, the more we lose something that we can identify as human. So it's this sort of zero-sum game where we lose our humanity because we become more and more like automatons. And that was my initial idea. I mean, well, that's it's also the idea that a lot of people have when they when they think about Tokyo and this problem of operation beyond capacity, is how do you get a system to carry so many people and to function in ways that are pretty much unthinkable in the United States or even places in Europe where you have a train, you know, a train with ten cars and four hundred people per car every ten minutes. I'm sorry, every, every, less than every two minutes. Mm-hmm. So, and you think about that, it's, it's 4,000 people per, per train. And the general assumption there is that the only way to do that is to have people who are incredibly disciplined, almost automatons. So they, they, they line up exactly in the same place and they march into the train and, and there's really no room for error at all. Otherwise, the system will collapse. So that's it's this idea again that in order for technology and complicated technology to function at maximum efficiency, you have to remove all kinds of play within the system. Whether that means a play between the parts or the or any kind of leeway within the system, and. That was my initial, you know, reading from, from Shivelbush and sort of my critique of, of modernity and, the, and, and instrument, instrumentalization of, of human relationships. That's the general critique of sort of this thesis of modernity. That was my initial sort of presupposition when I came to Tokyo and tried to understand the system. But I was really um, surprised to find that that's actually not the case, that it's actually the system doesn't work by becoming more and more... Uh, so more and more efficient. I mean, it's incredibly efficient, but more and more precise to the fact that to, to the level that it needs everybody to, it needs the commuters to be absolutely disciplined automatons. It actually works because there's a kind of mutual recognition, kind of give and play, a give and take between the system on one hand and the, and the commuters on the other. And that's that it works because it's able to accommodate that 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 space, that space of play between the two, and that's what allows it to to operate at a level of optimization that is otherwise unthinkable. And that asks us, I think, to rethink what we mean by a term like optimization, where we generally associate a term like optimization with with absolute efficiency, radical efficiency, to the point that we remove all aspects of what we would call humans, right? But here we have an example where we have an optimization that actually works by accounting for by allowing for for uh, these, these unexpected aspects, for allowing a certain amount of play, a certain amount of leeway, a certain amount of what yo-yo between the the um, 
the commuters and the system. And so what became really important for me to understand is that it's not the automatization of the commuters, but actually requires that the commuters pay really close attention to the system and that the system play really pay really close attention to the commuters. So you have a kind of mutual attentiveness on the technology and, the, and its operators on one hand and the commuters on the other. So that attentiveness is really almost at an embodied level where people sense, and this goes to a different part of the book, sense the rhythm of the system and are able to, to, um, to accommodate its rhythms in different ways. And the system also is able to accommodate the, the changes of the city. And this, uh, this goes back to the larger question of technology and larger framework and the, the reconceptualization of technology that I was trying to do with the book which is to think about a technology that the higher, the more complex the technology is, that means not the more, the more efficient and less, not just efficient, but more determined, overdetermined it is, but actually the more room it has for human interaction. And so this demands a different kind of treatment of technology, a different understanding of possibilities of, 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 uh, of technological development where we get a technology that's not determining what we should do or, or is uh, pinning us into certain positions in life, but actually opening up different kinds of possibilities. Mm-hmm. So this was part of the, the attempt to rethink um, different ways of uh, uh, being with technology. But this goes back also to what you were saying, this idea that yo-yo is this, this concept that, that proliferates. I mean, the whole point of the book is that each point at each chapter gives you a different, a different, perspective on the gap, a different perspective mm-hmm. on addressing the interval. So it's one thing in the first chapter, and by the last chapter, it's something else entirely. So you have different ways of different iterations of that gap, different iterations of what I'm calling yo-yo throughout the whole book. There's kokoro no yo-yo, there's you know, a willingness to be right. open to the outside world, to be open to someone else, to have the leeway to accept something, to, to accept difference, becomes a really important idea throughout the book too. Yeah, I think one of the things that comes through routinely as you read through the book, it it just crops up in many places, is the sense in which people are, as you say, they're not just automatons working, moving through the system. They're engaging the system and they're engaged by the system. And they also learn how to improvise as they work through it. You know, they, they find interesting different ways to sort of work that system and, and find their way through it. Um, which is, I think, very different from this image of just this these herds of people moving through. Um, in chapter two, you you actually, I, I want to get to something which um, is very much tied into this this conversation, and and uh, you address something that I, I suppose many of us who've spent time in, in Japan but who didn't grow up there um, have wondered, and it's to me one of the great mysteries, and and I appreciate that you solved it for me, but. Um, the mystery is how do people fall apparently deeply asleep on the train and then suddenly wake up just in time to dart out the doors? It's amazing, stadium? isn't it? It's amazing. It's <laughs> yep. absolutely amazing. Yeah. It is. And and I, yeah. I will say my, my wife is 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 from Japan and, and she lived in Tokyo for a long time. And, and I, I, I'm amazed that when we go back, she'll still do this. And I'm like, how do you do that? And um, <laughs> But you, you quote um, Mito Yuko's answer to this as being, quote, the rhythm of the train is etched into the bodies of the city's inhabitants. I thought that was a very profound way to think about this. It was really engaging. So I, I, w- what does Mito mean by this idea that the, the rhythm of the train is etched into the bodies of Tokyoites? 
So first, I should say that Mito Yuko uh, was just an amazing person throughout my research. She she met with me many times, and we she I read her book, and then I was able to flag per, parts of the chapters that we wanted to, that I wanted to speak with her uh, at length about, and we would sit for hours, and she would tell me these wonderful stories, and she was just so uh, she has just this really generous and, and genuine intellectual curiosity that was just fantastic. So I, 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 one of my hopes is that I'll be able to have the book translated and to give it back to her, you know, because she was so helpful in helping me think with this. So, um, she, 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 uh, there's, there's more to her story, but I'll begin with the idea that, that cities in general have their rhythms, I think, that are imprinted on us, imprinted on us. And this is, I mean, it's whether we're aware of it or not. I think that, that all cities have particular rhythms. Um, I think of all the cities that I, that I've lived in in my life and New York, it's, you know, maybe it's the 24 seven subways uh, that are always, and there's always someone on the street in New York. It's, you know, a city that never sleeps and, and Tel Aviv is the city that I've lived in. Um, it's the buses and the taxis and the long, quiet Saturdays with everybody hanging out on sidewalk cafes or in Vancouver. It's the proximity to the ocean that gives it its particular kind of rhythm. But as we said with Tokyo, it's really inseparable from that vast and complex train network. I mean, you hear the signal bells of the, um, of the crossings in many places uh, and you can hear the, the electronic pulses of the signal bells. I don't know. They're different than they are in the United States. Um, and you hear the trains going by. So it's really sort of a presence always in the background of wherever you are. Um, but what's really interesting for Mito's description is how she relates the specificity of that, of that train experience to the driving curve and the rhythm that's etched on the bodies from that curve. And she spends a long time on that in her chapter and uh, I actually I reproduced that part of the curve in my book too. Um, so there's a lot in the book that I wanted to put in, a lot from her book that I wanted to put in. But of course, I you know, as much as I was fascinated by that, I didn't want to just sort of reproduce her book. So unfortunately, some of that was left out, and I really hope also that someone someday will translate her book because it's just a wonderful analysis of the, of the train system in Japan. But the specific driving, the driving curve, what's so interesting and specific about it is that it's the, it's a specific pattern of acceleration and deceleration that happens between the stations. And it happens in order for the trains to run on time. And she goes back in her book, and I think it's in the book or maybe it's a conversation, part, it's hard to differentiate between the two now. Um, she tells of that, the development of that, of the driving curve as something that initially happens with soldiers who are coming back from the war. And the way she explains it is that the soldiers, because they've been in this sort of this mechanized warfare for the past, you know, so many years, they have a particular uh, attention to the machines, a particular relationship with the machines where they're able to sense that driving, they're able to sense what would be the proper acceleration and the proper deceleration between the stations and they're able to do it without looking at the speedometer. And it's it's that relationship initially of the driver to the, to, the, to the system and the actual rhythm of the machine that allows for them to develop what she calls the driving curve, which is then reproduced on every every line within the space of the tra- within the space of the of the stations where you have a sort of 
revving of the motor as it as it accelerates out of the station. And then there's that long sort of cruising speed between. And then there's the motor slowing down as the machine brakes. And so that sort of going up and then smoothing out and then coming back down is something that it it causes people to go to sleep almost. If you, it's one thing you notice, you start to get sleepy when you get on the train. It's 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 a comforting feeling. So that's part that feeling is 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 something that's internalized. It becomes you know part of the the vibrations of the body, part of what lulls you to sleep. So she actually, as I said, she actually takes it back to you know the soldiers coming back in the 1950s, and then it it's developed from there, and it's what allows the trains to be on time, and then that becomes part of the the orderly rhythm of the everyday practices. And I should say here that. As I do point out that there are people, as, as you as you noted too, the people who jump up to get off the train at the last moment, but there are also people at the end of the night who who don't get up, who end up waking up at the end of the line with the last train. So that's another part of the of the book, and I think that I mentioned that. Right? So there are people who who still who do not wake up and who end up, you know, at these at these uh, end of the line stations and having to kill the whole night and wait till the train. The next morning, so there's interesting enough. There's a whole infrastructure set up for those type of people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually as you were describing that. I I, d- I did not think of this in, as I was reading the book, but now I, I I think what you're describing is very much like what happens with the with the body and the relationship to the machine when you drive a car with a manual transmission. Um, you don't you know once you get good at it you don't think about when to shift. You don't look at the tachometer. You know how the car feels and how it sounds. And and you hear the engine and you know when to shift. And it just happens. And it sounds like it's very much the same kind of thing that you're talking about in terms of the rhythm of the train. You get on, you kind of fall asleep. And then as as the feeling of the train changes, you, you don't know it's time to wake up. You just wake up. Yeah, and it's it was particularly interesting for me because it speaks to a kind of embodied attention, an attention that's not necessarily one that's located in a constant um, um, emphasis on on you know sort of this rational attention to the world around you, but an attention that that's always embedded in your relationship with the environment. So an attention that you don't that's that's sort of a it's running in the background all the time. And that kind of attention becomes very important because it's our attention to that built world. It's an attention to the engineered world of our environment. Some people would say, oh, okay, we, we have to have this, this attention to, to the natural world around us. But we, we are able to develop these forms of attention, attentiveness, really, to, to these engineered environments. And one, one of the remarkable parts of this is you know, the capacity of the human being to to change, the pe- capacity of our bodies to to align ourselves with different kinds of environments, and and then really learn to be attentive and and accommodating with those environments. So it goes back also to this idea of yo-yo and the people needing to always be attentive to the environment. And one of the things that that she states, that Mito Yuko states, and uh, I think I mentioned in the book as well, is people get a visceral sense when the trains are very late or the system's audible. And it's almost a kind of queasiness, almost a nausea that something's out of whack, right? Your, your world is not, 
you know, it's coming out of alignment. It's coming unhinged and you don't know. It's not just anticipation or uncertainty. You actually feel like there's, there's a disruption, <laughs> disruption in the force, you could say. Right? <laughs> you feel it around you. You feel that your engineering environment isn't performing in a way that's, that's in sync with you. So that's also something that, that I think Tokyoites um, recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, in in general in Japan, I, I was thinking as you described that the the you know the shinkansen and uh, I've, it doesn't happen very often, but I've been a couple times when I've been waiting and it's been a minute late, and people talk about it. It's like, whoa, it's a minute late, and uh, you know in the U.S., if a train is a minute late, it's on time. Um, but you know that it's kind of out of the normal order of things. And so it becomes something to talk about. Yeah. The amazing part is that the trains, as I said in the book, um, they're late all the time, but they're not, they're late within a certain yo-yo, within a certain leeway. Right. So it's when that it's, it's the, what makes the system so incredible is not the management of precision, it's the management of the gap in between. So it's that, and that's what requires so much attention of the, the train operators, but also the commuters too, because they, they have to manage that gap together. They have to manage that, that, that space. So the, the parameters aren't spread, spread too wide. So the, the, it, it doesn't, um, diverge too much from the, the operation where it can actually, the system can work with the human beings and the human beings can work with the system. The two really have to be in a constant state of communication, whether that's embodied or, 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 or not. This gets me thinking about a, another point that you bring up, actually, in the same chapter. You, you talk about the, the silence of Tokyo trains and um, what I tend to refer to as the, the other orientation of people in Japanese society. And, and mm-hmm. you argue that the, the maintenance of silence is, as, as you say, and I'll quote, a, a conscious and rigorously maintained process through which people create space for themselves where there is no space. I thought this was a really important point, not only in relation to understanding the behaviors on trains in Tokyo, but uh, for me, I think it illuminates something that I've, I've felt for a long time about Japan, that it is not the you know stereotypically collectivist society that it often gets characterized as being. Rather, there's a kind of powerful other orientation in which people are concerned about the needs and expectations of the people around them. And I think with with your work, we might extend that to the the overall sort of technological context, um, but they can also um, it's can also be employed as a way to maintain privacy and personal space. And so I thought I thought this part of the book says a great deal about Japanese social practices in general, not just about you know what's happening in the context of the trains. Um, and I'm wondering, what, what, how would you feel about that kind of characterization of, of things? Yeah, that's actually that's that's that's, that's very helpful. Um, and you know, it reminds me some of, uh, of some of your work on autonomy. I think we have a, a shared interest on that on the question. But to to go back to sort of the beginning, I mean, it it was one of the one of the things that remained a remarkable impression for me from the very beginning when I started the field work for this. My idea was that I was going to ride the train every morning. And I did this for many months. I when I woke up at a certain time, I rode the train every morning from the same from the same station. And initially I thought I would, you know, pick up conversation with specific people and, and we would meet every day and I would have these I would be able to develop these long sort of, you know, 
narratives and life stories from the different writers. And that was how the book was going to go. But of course, when I lined up for the train and the dead silence and that nobody would speak and nobody would speak to me. And we're lining up and every morning I'd get on the train with the same people and we'd be packed in. And when I did try to actually talk to people, I realized very quickly that I was making them very uncomfortable because I was the only person talking on the train. And so I had to quickly reconfigure my my assumptions in the whole fieldwork project to think about not that I need to talk to people, but actually to think about what does it mean that there's so much, that this incredible silence on the train in the morning, on the, on the packed trains where people are just absolutely being, just, I mean, your face is in somebody's back and you, you, you know, your head just feels crushed at some points and you literally can't breathe. Uh, you, know, you can't take a full breath because your lungs are just being pressed from all sides around you. And it's that level of, of, of of congestion on the train. So the silence, I, I had to begin to really think, take seriously the silence on the train um, rather than trying to get people to talk to me. And so that was, that's where that this idea really came from, um, the, that initial sort of research, that initial um, fieldwork experience. But if I had to rewrite the book, I would, I think I would go back to what, if I can borrow from uh, contemporary science fiction, I don't know if you've been watching The Expanse. I have not watched that. I need to. Yeah. So there are some wonderful ideas in the experience. It's one of my absolute all-time favorites. And I, I get a lot of my idea, ideas from science fiction. You know, probably mm-hmm. recognize um, But there's this idea in the expanse. I don't think it's well worked out in the, in the, in the series yet, but it's definitely in the books. It's the idea of the doctrine of the one ship. And it's the concept among the, among the belters in the expanse. Those are people who are born in space and whose lives depend on the collective maintenance of their infrastructure. So people who can't take for granted the air that's around, people who can't take for granted that they have water, people who recognize that every action that they do actually affects their infrastructure around them, and through that could affect others around them too. So there's this shared notion of, of we all live on an incredible, on one ship with, with thousands of different parts that have to work together in order for this ship to, to not suffer catastrophic uh, failure. So, so I think in, in uh, the silence of, of, the, of the train is part of the understanding that people actually, if people were to begin to talk, if people were to begin to interact in ways that would make other people around them uncomfortable, that would undermine the capacity of the system to actually work. And so the silence of the train is is really important for maintaining the operation beyond capacity, which is the central idea, one of the central ideas of the book. And it's this this notion of a kind of shared space, the notion of of your actions being always related to reaction to 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 actions of others. I mean, we can take this back to 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 ideas that emerged in the United States with you know, Buckminster Fuller's idea of Spaceship Earth, where he was trying to get people to understand that we all live on, 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 a, on a, a limited vessel, right? Then we all have to interact because we share the space. And so we, this really is the doctrine of the one ship, and that one ship is Earth. We have to think about our treatment of each other, and we have to think about our treatment of this environment differently. But it goes in, it, it works from there, I think, to, and I think that you write about this too, are kind of Misunderstanding, I think, of we uh, that we have of, of the notions of autonomy and independence, and too often we think of autonomy in the United States 
or I think a lot in in, in Western uh, out of Western philosophy, we think of autonomy as equal to independence, that it's the right to do whatever you want as as a sort of bounded subject who can march the world through the world according to your own reason and rationality and 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 act on the world around you. And that's not exactly what I think was meant by autonomy in the, the way that's discussed in a lot of in the initial philosophers of Western civilization, where they they're never talking about independence. They're always talking about autonomy, which is always comes back to the principle of relatedness. It always comes back to the fact that you are never acting alone. You are acting within a field in which the other people's actions are the conditions of possibilities for your own your own actions. And so your own potentials rest on the potentials of the other actors. So there is no there's never an, there's never a space of actual radical independence. There's only ever a space of autonomy. And to think that we could be somehow independent is ab- absolutely absurd. I mean it's this perversion of an idea of, of autonomy, I think. And I think it's something that we miss a lot, and, and it's something that I think that we've missed a lot in recent political debates. And if you look at you know, the way people are, you know, I, 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 I'll choose whether I want to wear a mask or not. I mean, that's just you know, that's not that's not that's 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 perverse independence. It's not autonomy. It's not it's not a kind of re- responsible behavior. And I think that coming back to the idea of the science of the train. I think there's a sort of an underlying recognition, and you're right. I wouldn't call it groupism, or it's not sort of this overdetermined collectivist idea. It's it's thinking society from a different premise, one that doesn't begin with the idea of an individual who's stuck in a state of nature and who overcomes the state of nature and found society. It's thinking from the very fact that first we have an environment, and from that environment we have the emergence of people, and those people and their environment and the people with one another, that kind of fundamental relatedness, not of people, but of people as sort of emergent operations, that is crucial to the functioning and to the health of our society in general. So it's sort of a very long answer to my help. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's, it's actually really interesting. And, and I, I was thinking about, I have very rarely had a conversation on a train in Japan, but there are a couple of times, and, and the environment's very important, when that does happen, I remember one very well. It was probably about 10, 1030 in the morning. So the trains have a lot of your people on them at that time of day, you know, and so it wasn't all that packed. And I was standing next to a, a, a young guy um, and he's carrying what is obvious to me, uh, a snare drum in a case. And since I'm a drummer, I, I looked at it and went, oh, snare drum. And I just kind of looked at him and I, I just wasn't really thinking too much. And I just said, are you a drummer? And he goes, oh yeah. And so we started chatting a little bit and we had this really nice conversation about (laughs) drumming. And it turned out we were actually going to the same music store. Oh, wow. And and so we, we, we got off the train together, we walked in and we couldn't find a music store. So we wound up wandering around together and, and finally found it. And, you know, but that was a, a very, very kind of specific sort of context that allowed for that conversation. We had a a, a common interest that I picked up on because I saw what he was carrying, and there weren't too many people on the train. If the train had had a lot of people on it, I doubt I would have said anything at all. And so the the environment really changed the capacity to have a conversation. Yeah, and you you know it's interesting because the the trains at night are not like that at all. So the trains at night actually be, can be quite raucous. I mean, you can have, 
you have you know people swaying, you have the drunk, you so sometimes you have someone who's thrown up in a train car. I mean, they're they're very, it's a very different scene. You, you you need to always be suspicious when a train pulls into a station and it's crowded, except for one car is totally empty. You know that you should avoid that car too, that other people <laughs> because of because someone threw up or something. So the trains at night allow for a very different kind of condition. But you do have these these meetings, you know, uh, at points. Um, outside, as you say, outside the, the rush hours where that condition of silence is really, um, I'm not going to say mandatory, but understood as necessary for the operation of the system. So it's very important for everybody to, 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 to be able to, to, um, keep the system running like that. Yeah. Well, if people start having long conversations, all that, all of a sudden that potential for the leeway starts stretching and, then somebody doesn't get off when they need to get off or something. Right. Like that, right. You know? no. Or you, you have to talk to the same person every day. So, right. you know, I, yeah. one of the people that I interviewed said, if I begin to talk to them, I mean, everybody knows everybody on the train. So they know, right. everybody knows the faces of the people with whom they commute. But then, you know, you know, if you begin a conversation, then you have to maintain a relationship. So are you going to send them the, you know, the, the New Year's card? Or you know, yep. <laughs> it can proliferate out into these very complex kinds of relationships. So you have to be very careful where you're going to expend your energy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I'd like to turn to um, chapter five, which I, I think is, is a really powerful chapter in the book. You entitled it uh, 44 Minutes. Um, and you get into one of, of course, the more you know serious problems in in a Japanese society in general, and certainly in relation to the train system, and it's the problem of suicide um, in the train system in Tokyo. Uh, this was, you know, particularly interesting to me because I've spent quite a bit of time in my own work doing research on elder suicide in Japan, and this comes mm-hmm. up occasionally. And so, you know that. Um, this has been a, a major issue over the past few years, and and I've noticed uh, each year as I go to uh, go to Tokyo, I, I go there pretty much every year, except for now. Hmm. Um, but I, I notice that you see more and more stations that have barriers that have been constructed along the edge with automatic doors that open so that people can't get to the edge of the platform and and they can't jump. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd like to read a passage that you. Um, have in here that you develop in response to anthropologist Mary Douglas's concept of matter out of place. Uh, And I found this to be very powerful. And you say, a commuter suicide is not a transgression of symbolically constituted boundaries. When the commuter body impacts with the commuter train, the critical spacing between human and machine is dissolved. The result is nothing short of a systemic crisis for the collective. As the disorder of the event propagates outward from the body on the tracks to collapse the margin of indeterminacy of the specific train line and disrupt the margins of the indeterminacy for all intersecting um, train lines. I thought this was a very theoretically rich statement. Um, it, it's drawing on a lot of ideas. I think the idea of indeterminacy is very powerful here in the way that it sort of cascades through the system. And I was wondering if you could unpack this idea a bit for our listeners. Yeah, so this goes back to, and I, and I should start. I, I should start actually in saying that I struggled a lot with this chapter because I didn't know how to write it. I mean, it's it's such a difficult topic, the topic of suicide, and it's. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to take this perspective of. of 
interviewing people who had lost someone because I wasn't sure if the questions were, I didn't want to impose on that, that, on the, on, you know, it was obviously a traumatic experience, but how could it not be? And I didn't want to follow that kind of line of reasoning. And I did initially try to talk to JR about it. And, you know, they gave me a perfunctory sort of answer about suicide and the kinds of um, mechanisms that they were developing to prevent it. But they obviously didn't want to talk about it at much uh, at length either. And they specifically didn't want to talk about the impact that it had on drivers. The most I was told was that drivers, recently they developed, and this was a long time ago, so I think things have probably changed, but they had developed um, a, a hotline for drivers who had encountered, who had been you know, driving in the time of suicide when someone jumped in front of the train. Um, but before that, it was just common for drivers to be taken out to drink that evening by fellow drivers who witnessed something similar. So there was a kind of camaraderie that, that drivers could rely on in cases like that. And it, apparently it just wasn't enough. So I think that, you know, it's it's a topic that is that was difficult for me also because, you know, the first time, I, as I said, I was going to ride the train every morning um, as part of my field work. And the first morning that I actually arrived in the station, there was, you know, there was the morning when someone jumped so that was my introduction to the system. So it was really shocking. And I, I obviously, because it was my first morning, I was just taken aback. And it was the lack of reaction to the people, uh, of the people around me that really threw me off. And, and then trying to get at it and try to understand how to, to, how to understand this phenomenon was something that I really struggled with. So I, um, I, I, you know, I pulled back and I, and I, Looked at it through through the framework that that I tried to develop for the whole book, which is I'm really trying to um, the underlying conceptual ambition of the book is to develop the theory of technology, and that's you know so I I mobilized this this section toward that that ambition, and what I'm trying to uh, what I'm trying to emphasize in the book what I'm trying to arguing is is I'm trying to argue against a kind of cyborg posthumanism. Where we see a merging of human and machine, and that's sort of the, the the flip side of the the adversarial relationship, whereby the more machines progress, we get uh, uh, we we lose something that we can call human, and the cyborg posthumanism is well, we just at some point we merge with machines, and so it becomes impossible sort of to manage those boundaries of human and machine, and we end up with a different kind of you know, human reality, a different sort of techno humanism. However, you want to call it, but that—that's the other side of that that argument. And that also, to me, it just—it wasn't right. It didn't—it didn't work with my understanding of the system. It didn't work with my in my experience. So I ended up drawing on on someone like Gilbert Simondon, and I, you know, I spend probably too much time in the beginning of the book trying to unpack aspects of his of his thinking, particularly this idea of, of technicity and understanding uh, a technological experiment experience from the level of, of collectiveness from the quality of connect- collectiveness that it enables and so that was a very important uh, concept for me and what I found most helpful about Simon Don is that he's able to talk about a relationship between humans and machines that doesn't collapse the difference between them and that was something that really rang true with what I was experiencing in the field and for him, the idea is that, that you know cybernetics and other ways of thinking about human, humans and machine human machine relationships, it tends to 
impose these reductions, whether it be to isomorphic uh, aspects of human machine or whether you know both are reducible to logics of information processing, it tends to collapse the difference. But for Simondon, the importance is that humans are humans and machines are machines, and the whole point of the sort of the potentials of the technological becoming and human becoming is that they're not the same. Is that they're they have vastly different capacities for for becoming for or what he calls individuation. And they may have analogous operations of becoming, analogous operations of, of what he calls individuation, um, kinds of genesis and ontogenesis, as he says. But they, those capacities for becoming are very different because of the materialities and the processes of, of concretization on one, on one hand for the human beings and a sort of programmed routine that, that's part of the technological so the whole point for me was that that margin of indeterminacy is what's critical in, in the spacing of the system. So that there's a space between the human, there's a space between the, between the machine, and it's the, the collective negotiation of that space, um, whether it's humans on one part and the machines on the other, as a sort of operation, right? Not humans as a, as a, as a given entity and machine as a given entity, but human and machine as, as two kinds of processes that are in potential or sort of parallel parallel trajectories of becoming. And it's when that space between them collapses, when you don't have a margin of intimacy, when you don't have the leeway between between the two anymore, that's where the machine, the whole system goes into crisis. And so that allowed me to begin to think about the body on the tracks is not just matter out of place, but a different kind of crisis that it, that proliferates inside the system. So it really came out of the the underlying, as I was saying, the underlying conceptual ambition of the book to think a different kind of relationship between human beings and technology and how the body on the tracks is a moment where that whole relationship comes into question. Because for me, the failure of response, the failure of people to, they could recognize it, but they wouldn't acknowledge the fact that a life was gone. So it was sort of dealt with, but never really acknowledged. And that became very difficult for me to, to understand. I mean, I didn't want to sit in judgment of people, but the, this almost callousness. You know, people, you know, ah, there goes a day. Ah, there goes an hour behind the rest of the day. And I just, it was hard for me to understand. So that's sort of where that all comes out of this, this sort of um, understanding of that. Uh, uh, of that moment and, and, as, and attempt to to weave it into the larger ambition of the book. I'm just curious, do you, do you have any sense of how people in other, you know, cities like Tokyo respond to a, a suicide in the train, like in New York? I, I really have no idea, but I wonder if you looked into that or if you have any sense of that. So fortunately, I, I was never on location when someone jumped or was pushed in New York. And that's often the case where people don't know whether they, they jumped or pushed. Mm-hmm. But I, I arrived, you know, I was going to school at Columbia. There was times that I arrived when the train had been stopped because of that. And it's interesting. I mean, people were generally as upset, uh, uh, more upset about the, the lack of transportation and the disruption to their schedule than they were about the life being taken. So I think there is something that translates across to other locations and other uh, other sites, you know, it's amazing that that in, in New York, too. I mean, New York, the, the subway is just such a gross place. <laughs> the, the state—that's you. It's not a place where I would want to ever be, and you know, in my life, that's for sure. 
Um, in Japan, of course, it turns out the system's a lot cleaner, so it's nice, it probably doesn't look as bad. But one of the things that um, is remarkable is that often, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, places where there have been road accidents in Japan, people will often leave flowers, right? And it was something that I always thought was just so strange. Nobody ever leaves flowers on a train platform for for the lives that have been lost there. And there was a time in Tokyo in, in when I was writing, actually, where there were suicides just every day. And every day the system would be stopped. And you, I never encountered flowers or any kind of commemoration on, on the platform. So it felt very alienated to me. Yeah, alienated. I wonder, you know, I, I've run across something in, in my own work on suicide that, I, I don't know, it may, may or may not be illuminating on this, but uh, I... I Encountered it, you know, in in um, rural Japan, uh, where I've you know done a lot of work on this. Um, the most common form, typically, of, of suicide is has been hanging. And one of the things when I asked people how they felt about that, uh, they did not really respond in a way that I expected. They, of course, talked about you know it was very sad for the family and the person, this kind of thing. But then they would say, and it's very inconsiderate. And I thought, what? What, what do you mean? He says. Well, somebody's got to clean that mess up. And I thought about that, and I thought that that's a very that captures something about that other orientedness in terms of behavior in Japan that you you're always thinking about how what I do might affect somebody else. And of course, you know, if someone hangs themselves, well, that's not really the end of it because the people who are left behind have to clean up both the emotional mess left and the physical mess left by what happened. And I wonder if that's, you know, maybe part of how, why people react the way they do in, in, in the, in the Tokyo train system when this happens. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's strange because it, it is definitely, um, it, it's definitely felt as incredibly inconsiderate and people will say that, you know, how, how could they do this? Such a, such a self-centered act. And, you know, it's part that I, I try to emphasize in the chapter is that, for a self-centered act, it actually reverberates in, in the opposite way. So it, you know, if you were to express your agency in Tokyo in times where you feel that you don't have agency at all, bringing the train system to a stop is an incredibly powerful potential, right? There's no other expression of agency that's stronger than, I mean, it's almost like it's active terror. So you just, you, you do it through the negation of, of yourself and you, you, you're able to do that. And yet, the result of this is so often that nobody cares about the person who's lost their life. And in the fact that, that the newspapers will, at, some, at an earlier point, they did actually tell the stories of, you know, you know possibly what, why the person did it, but they stopped doing that, particularly in the time when it was every week. And they would just tell about the, 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 the disruption caused by it. So there was this double erasure. That happens where you know you're erasing yourself through the act of suicide, but you're also that act of suicide as an act of agency, as a final act of agency, is also erased by the institutions on which you are acting. So it's sort of this this strange double violence that's done on the body itself, but also then on the 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 um, the agency of that individual who's been erased. So it, it is. Um, it, it definitely resonates in those ways, but I think that it's something that um, 
you know, suicide is such a difficult subject. So, yes, it, yeah. it's, it's difficult to do research on. Um, yeah. You know, I've I've had you know occasions where I mean, first of all, it's, it's difficult. How do you even ask the question? Um, right. You know, when I've done work on elder suicide, you, you can't ask someone directly. You have to work around it. And right. I've been in situations where a question I often have asked is, is you know, what, what are your hopes for the future? Because that kind of is a signal to maybe what they're thinking about. And I've, I've had instances where someone, I had one woman in particular who said, I want to die. And she went on for 10 minutes about that. And at that time, actually in the, in the late 90s when that occurred, there were no systems in place in, in rural Japan, at least, to address things like this. There were no hotlines. There were no... No kind of no infrastructure type thing to to cope with with suicide. That's changed a great deal over the last twenty years. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. much different now. But you know, it was. You know, I, I, no, go ahead. Yeah, Junko Kitanaka's work on on mm-hmm. um, psychoanalysis in Japan. She's she's someone I think who does really interesting work on explorations of the development of these kinds of uh, notions of self care. And how they've become more and more acceptable, but acceptable when they're through, when they're mediated by certain kinds of institutional mechanisms that make them more acceptable. Um, so yes. she's, she's, she's someone I think that does really interesting work also on, on suicide and has tried to um, make sense of it in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, um, Chikako Ozawa da Silva, also at Emory, has done some really interesting. She's done interesting work on um, these suicide packs that form, um, where you know, like a, a quick website appears where pe- someone says, you know, I'm going to commit suicide at X time at X right. place. Join me yeah. there for it. Um, and and she's she's really done some very interesting uh, work on agency in relation to this, and that for people who are very. Um, disenfranchised and alienated, this is sort of one potential moment of agency, which kind of gets back to what you were saying about, you know, the, the jump. And it's a moment of agency in a context where some people don't feel like they have any. And if they can shut down, you know, half the rail system in Tokyo, that was a rather powerful <laughs> moment. Um, so, yeah, as it comes back to, um, sorry, the, and yeah. I think I, I, I try to, the film that I deal with in, in that chapter. Oh, the, yes, uh, yes. Suicide Circle. I mean, it was just, in some ways, it's an awful film. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Not only, but, it, but it's, just, it's so disjointed. Yeah. Um, that's a film that I think tries to deal with those websites, right? The, the, yeah. Those websites that, that, that you know, but at the same time tries to call attention to the complicity of that, of the mass media and the websites and actually creating these kinds of um, conditions possibly for these, 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 Suicides, group suicides. Yes, you you described the opening scene of that film uh, very effectively in the book. It's if you know for someone who hasn't seen it, it's it's a very very troubling um, opening to a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, let's turn. I want to turn to um, what I think is one of the really powerful points of the book, and and we've been kind of going around this a little bit. And ultimately, I found you know sort of a for me that one of the things that you're doing is that you challenge this notion of a, of a sharp human machine conflict or tension by exploring, exploring this idea of this margin of indeterminacy and as a kind of a co-constructed space. And um, really there's a close interaction 
uh, between humans and machines in that context. And and one of the things I kind of took away from this was uh, a sense in which um, you kind of challenge the the common notion of a a sharp distinction or separation between the world, the, the human world, and and the natural world, or the worlds of artifice and 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 the world of the natural world, the things that we create and the stuff outside of the world we create. And I've, I've always found this to be an interesting problem because it's always intrigued me that we talk about human technology, things that we create as being artificial. And yet we don't talk about, you know, beaver dens and beaver dams and things <laughs> as being artificial. We talk about them as being natural. And I've always wondered kind of why we do that. Why do we have that separation? And so I thought, and they're very well designed, right? So. Yeah, yeah, they're very well designed, exactly. And and so I think, you know, I saw your work as sort of challenging the scope of what we think about as human collectivity to really embrace and include our machines as as part of this large social and natural environment that we, we inhabit together and co-construct. And I, I wonder what you'd think about that idea. Yeah, so this is a... a- I mean, that goes back, I think, to what I said was the underlying sort of conceptual mission of the book, which was to try to develop uh, an adequate framework for thinking with technology within an anthropological story. So, and that's something that I was very, I've been very frustrated over the years that I can't, I've been unable to, to find an anthropology that does a really good job dealing with technology. Mm-hmm. So often the question comes down to, well, technology is is a, a medium for understanding a different kind of social analysis, or technology is a medium for, uh, it's, it's all about the labor, or it's about social alienation. But actually coming back to dealing with the technology itself, there's so few anthropologists that, that try to do that. Um, you can think, of, you know, Latour in some ways is one of the uh, initial people that asks these questions about machines and technology and takes them very seriously but also for him it comes back to kind of representing the work of the social through a technological apparatus so technology has these functions but it's about or with reassembling social or representing the social for him um, in its various ways or representing the production of knowledge through technological um, apparatuses so i there was sort of the frustration of not finding not having a, a, that framework as i said an adequate framework for for dealing with technology in anthropology that put me on to trying to think of this book as something that would that would offer a response to that and a solution, maybe a, a way to begin to think about what technology is. And that's why I call the book a technography rather than an ethnography, because I felt that I wasn't really making those classic moves of ethnography anymore. Um, I was trying to put myself within a different set of relationships and then through those sets of relationships, try trying to develop that that framework for understanding technology. So the book really does try to explore those those human technological relationships and at the same time try to give us a way of understanding those relationships as again, not just a, a sort of loss of humanity or the merger of human and machine, but as a different kind of environment, an environment that's we're never going to go back to something like you know, a nature that's not technological, even our nature itself, as we know now, is is very technological, right? There's no way to get around that. So the question now is really, well, we need a better thesis. We need a better way to think about technology 
Um, one that actually deals with technology is a very nuanced field and that we can't talk about nuclear power plants and iPads and iPhones in the same sentence. These are the, we say they're both forms of technology, but they're very different. And we have to understand at a more nuanced level what those differences are and the kinds of collectivity that they enable. And so the book is a way to try to develop that term technicity, which I use throughout, to think about technology from an anthropological perspective as a certain kind of quality of collective that's enabled through a relationship, through, through relations of technology, sort of this co-individuation of human technological um, um, uh, individuals, you might say. Yeah, I thought it also what comes through very powerfully in the book is, is the, the way this shaped, the, the way that you went about approaching the field work. And this is actually something I've, I've thought a lot about over the years as I, I do my field work in the same general area that my advisor Keith Brown uh, from Pitt um, has done his for you know since 1961, and his mode of transportation was the bicycle, and you know he he rides a bicycle around and and that's how he would get from place to place, and he has always said that that um, one of the things he really likes about the bicycle is he can stop easily and talk to people and and have conversations mm-hmm. and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. My mode of, of, of sort of locomotion was the automobile because uh, that's how people around me were moving around and how, how they do move around in, in the area where I do my research. And what has struck me is it leads to an extremely different way of thinking about the environment. For one thing, the space I move around in is quite a bit larger than where he can move around. But also the environment itself as I move in the car with the windows closed and I don't hear things the same way, it leads to a different approach to ethnography. And and I thought this is, I think, a very important aspect of of something we don't think enough about in anthropology is the the way in which the technology, the sort of technoscape that we live in, affects the way that we collect data and 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 do the field work. It really changes things. Yeah, no, that's completely um, where what I was trying to get it in the book is this idea. I think I borrow from from Thomas Lamar in saying this that you know thinking that happens on the train is different from thinking that happens off the train. Right, and that was the whole idea of thinking with the train. So, being within that immersive site, and that's also why I begin with Shivabush, who puts us into that ensemble from its initial phase, and says that this demands a new. It, it brings forth a different kind of human being. Yeah. And and different kind of social realities. So and that allows for you know once you start thinking of the train, you can start thinking of different forms of temporality that allow for different kinds of reading, that allow for different kinds of discussions, that allow for these kiosks, that allow for all the stuff around the train system. So it's a completely different set of possibilities that are opened up from thinking within the train. So that what I would call thinking with the train, right? So thinking. But it's very true. I mean, once we are, our, our fields of technological immersion radically inflect the kind of thinking that we're doing and the sorts of sort of um, intellectual trajectories that we will take up in our work. And I would, I think that anthropology actually has, you know, I think the reason that we've seen a couple of really interesting books that, that take that into account, I'm thinking of Valerie Olson's book, you know, Into the yes, Extreme. It's wonderful. On, on, yep. 
Yeah, I mean, her her attention to the technological in that book is also just wonderful. So yeah. I, I think that people are taking that up now in a more yeah. serious way. I would love to think that I, you know, I've informed the field, but I can't say that. Oh, I, I think you have. I think quite significantly, and and you know, I think I, I you know, as I think about this, I see an anthropology of the machine as a a truly rich ethnography that. It explores the human-machine interaction with a kind of nuanced theoretical sophistication that it draws from a lot of different areas, anthropology, philosophy, um, STS studies. And I, I learned you know, a huge amount from this book. Plus, I, I will say that, again, anyone who spent a lot of time in Tokyo, just reading about trains is interesting because, you you know, well, really anywhere in Japan, you can't, you can't be in Japan without thinking about trains. And so... Uh, you know, it really, I think it's really just kind of fun to kind of explore and think about what's really going on in that context. And so um, we've covered a lot of ground. I, I'd like to ask, what's next? What are you um, thinking about in terms of your research and plans for writing right. in the future? Right. So actually, I just received notice that I, I uh, my uh, application for an NEH was successful. So we are... So we are headed to Japan next year, um, and we are going to be living in the Northeast in a small community. Well, living in Sendai, but working mostly, my wife and I uh, do a lot of work together, of course, because we're bringing the kids. Um, she's also an anthropologist, and she's also, we have very similar sets of concerns, and so that's it's very helpful. So um, I'll be continuing work that I started on the question of experimental ecologies, and it's work that that comes out of the effects of 311 and the questions around the relationship to, with technology that are that are born with that crisis and with that, those events and i'm looking you know i'm very fascinated by by futures and uh, you know technology of the future but i'm also fascinated by technologies of the end and the way in which people prepare for the end and um you know for that that that's perhaps expressed in some ways in Japan by preparations for massive environmental crisis, um, uh, environmental uh, uh, na uh, 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 natural events. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm losing the word here. Um, natural disasters. Um, the way people prepare for natural disasters and the way in which also People are trying to, after 311, in the first years that I went there, I saw a lot of experimentation where, where groups were saying, listen, what we did, the post-war development, it doesn't work and we've reached a natural sort of limit to how much we can, we can push this environment towards industrialization, push it towards, towards, you know, uh, uh, towards certain models of, of development and it's time to rethink those models towards something that's different that's not a rejection of technology but mobilizing technology for different kinds of, of techno natures you can even say so i'm fascinated by those by that that kind of experimentation that's taking place um, and looking at the experimentation you know where it, where it succeeds and where it fails at the same time and how people are preparing for those sort of um, those those End scenarios. Uh, that's that's crisis, but also climate change. Because a lot of what we see, for example, with building seawalls, and this is where a lot of my new work focuses on the building of seawalls in in northeast Japan. A lot of that sort of resilient infrastructure is an experiment or a demonstration of infrastructure that I think is going to get adopted around the world as people 
prepare for climate change, to prepare for storm surges, for kinds of events that are completely unpredictable because we are in a whole whole new level of of climate that we don't have data about because it's one that's emerging rapidly around us and changing. So this kind of complexity and emergence that we don't know how to build for and the question of how do we build infrastructure, how do we build for futures when we don't quite know the environment that we're building for? How do we build for radical indeterminacy? So those are the questions that really come out in in the new work. Um, And the new work, as I said, is focused a lot on this question on on building seawalls and particularly the question of why the new seawalls that were built after 311, the March 2011 uh, um, events in Japan, why those seawalls are different from the seawalls that were built in the in the post-war. And it's not just a question of scale. It's about all the kinds of technology that's being mobilized to build these things, computer simulations, the way in which they're uh, reformulating the topography of the, of, the, of the coast, and how they're trying to create a new sort of environment of resilience that's very different. You know, in Japanese, it's the difference between bosai and gensai. So bosai is prevention of disaster. Gensai is sort of mitigating disaster. So they don't call the new systems bosai, they call it gensai. And so that in itself speaks to a whole different kind of experimentation and a whole different relationship with technology and infrastructure that I'm, that I'm very critical of at the same time looking for people who are, who are doing different experiments in different kinds of environmental engineering, different kinds of technology. So this is where the new project goes. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I, that region of Japan, Tohoku, I think is a, a fascinating place in terms of thinking about innovation in a broad sense. You've got so many things going on. You've got the, the, the shrinking of the population, which is affecting uh, people um, in that area. Uh, One of the things that's uh, intrigued me quite a bit is, is the uh, attempt to get this um, international linear collider uh, put in place there, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they've been, the area has been approved, but there are questions of funding. And uh, but it would lead to a, uh, a, if it's fully built, a 50, 55 kilometer long linear collider underground, um, yeah. and be very disruptive of the environment. And yet, on the other hand, do a lot of interesting things like bringing in people from all over the world to live there. And so it's a there's a a kind of a creativity and innovation going on in that area. Um, that is, is, I think, really fascinating to look at right now. And, yeah. and 311 had an effect on that. It had a very profound effect on that. Yeah. And the 311 was, I mean, in some ways, it's so disappointing because in the first years after 311, I mean, there was the tragedy of 311 and so many people were affected and just, you know, just terrible stories of loss. And yet there was so much hope that things could actually change. And there was this, I mean, I think we saw it with people on the streets in Tokyo saying no to nuclear power. And then it just kind of disappeared. And the shock of the disappearing, uh, the, the sort of the failure, the loss of hope, it was almost like going back to Anpo. I mean, it's like, not that I was alive at the time, but the same, I was speaking with people who, who had demonstrated them, the, the idea that they could actually push social change in Japan and then having it just disappear, taken away from them. And that loss of hope is something that it's also I'm trying to understand. Sort of, you know, what do you do when when you're trying to battle a system that is so set on a particular direction that it's very difficult to to nudge it toward any kind of change? Um, so that's also another part of this. Yeah. 
Well, I, Dr. Fisher, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel of the New Books Network. Uh, your work is fascinating. There is really, really wonderful thank stuff you. going on here, and it's been a been a real pleasure talking with you about this this entry into the ethnographic literature on Japan, and and really a much more broadly a very I think profound theoretical look at at humans and their machines and how they interact. So I, I want to thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful experience to be able to talk about the book. As you know, books are put out, and then there's this long silence that happens after one of readers actually reading it. And so this is a great affirmation of, of uh, the labor that went into it. And, um, you know, uh, it's a great opportunity to speak, and, and thank you for, for asking me to do this. Yeah, it was my pleasure. <laughs>